0: Listening to the
1: Getting Smart podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline. And today we get to talk with Rebecca Middles. Rebecca has launched an innovative school, mobilized two school district change efforts that have become nationally important models. We've long appreciated her contributions to competency education. And this summer, she's joining the Getting Smart team to extend her impact through system and learning design work with us. We're excited to have her on board. Let's listen in as Rebecca talks to Tom about designing systems that work for all learners.
0: Rebecca Middles, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you. Hey, Rebecca, uh, you grew up here in Western Washington, right? Yes, I did. It's um, good to have you back. When did you uh, decide that you'd be a teacher?
1: Um, You know, I think I probably always knew that I wanted to teach or that I liked teaching because I'm from a family of educators um, who always were putting learners at the center and working long hours. Um, But I think I fought it at first as I got older because I thought that um, the route that my family, my uncles, and others had taken Although making a difference in kids' lives wasn't a big enough change. and wasn't fast enough. And I think I felt that at the time, and I was a little idealistic perhaps, but I felt that an elected official could influence change and maybe write policy faster and impact more communities. So I went the route of the um, political science major, which has all kinds of stories to go with that. But I did feel that I would go – down that path and become a lawyer and elected official and try to make changes that way. And along that path, I became a little disenchanted of the process. And several years after receiving that degree and doing other things that were related, but not quite the same, I um, I think it was around 1996, 97, I made my way to Alaska and I was encouraging my partner at the time to pursue his teaching degree and attended some job fairs to support that. And while at one of these job fairs, I heard Rich DiLorenzo and Roger Sampson and maybe even Ron Gleason, if I can remember right, who's in the room, talking about the work they had been doing in Chugach School District. And I remember Rich holding a binder of standards saying, um, we hope learners will get this, but we're not being intentional as a system to guarantee it. And I think what he shared was in three years, I think this is correct, that they went from the 10th percentile to the 90th percentile. And so that clearly caught my attention. And this was back when Chugach was wanting to share this work and, and uh, Wendy, Rick, uh, Wendy Bettino, Rick Schreiber, Billy Joe, Bob Crumley, Doug Penn, Shannon, many others from Chugach were a part of that. And at that time it was the standards instruction assessment triangle of balanced instruction. And I, after hearing them speak about that change, I knew that this is what I had been wanting. And at that point, I decided to go back and get my teaching degree. And I, there was a progressive standards-based system at UAF, University of Alaska Fairbanks, that they were starting that gave students rubrics so they could see what they needed to get done and would develop their own pathway so you could experience it as a learner. And I picked up my master's there and signed up to join that change and got a really great mentor in North Pole that was doing some pretty edgy work for learner-centered education.
0: They and, do winner <laughs> up there. Wow.
1: Yes, they do. North Pole is actually south of Fairbanks. Little known fact, the, the town. Um, yeah, it's a, it, is,
0: thats a long winter.
1: It's a long winter. Super cold, but you know you do a lot of studying. You have a lot of work yeah. done.
0: and so what? Like, when did you finish your master's? Like two thousand?
1: Yes, it was right about two thousand. Um, and then I started. We um, I started out in a Yupik Eskimo village, a remote location called Tuntutuliak. And eventually was at a little town called Anderson, which is by Denali, kind of the foothills there of um, Denali Park. And that was really kind of um, not necessarily a one-room schoolhouse. It was big, slightly bigger than that. But you had to do a lot of those practices to meet kids where right. they're
0: at. And which so is really where the innovation in Shoe started. Shoe as many people know, a small school district headquartered in Anchorage, but serving a group of remote villages where really out of necessity, they constructed a a personalized and competency-based system. And I I think I visited about the same time that you did and was amazed at what I saw. I'd never seen the level of student ownership where kids were really moving at their own pace and knew what it took to move to the next level.
1: Exactly. That's about the time um, they were applying for the Baldrich Um, award and and school systems hadn't received that yet. And I think shortly thereafter, or maybe before you would know better, they became involved or had support for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where you were working as the director of education. So that's where we got involved and got to know you and that support,
0: which really escalated and scaled the work. What's the formation story of Highlander?
1: Uh, Well, after working, there was a few of us then, you know, from that work that were working in remote places across the state. And we would often get together through a coalition at that time we called QSI, Quality Schools. And we would talk about what would it be like to have a school that was full implementation from the beginning with a shared vision and created by kids. And at that time we were talking about it, but CJ Siegel and a small team of folks um, actually submitted an application. At that point, the state was giving money for charter apps and charter schools in general were a new concept for us up there and they didn't have any baggage with it. And we just thought, Oh, an option school where you could try some things and all schools could, all kids could apply to come. And once that was started, word got out and a lot of folks um, applied and got involved. And once us, some of us that um, were hired initially also then went recruiting. And this is where some names like Mark Stanley or Roxy Morant or Laura Hilger became involved, and and there were a lot of many other amazing teachers. But that school started with as a 7th through 10th grade model and with, with the intent of rolling up. So those 10th graders would become the first seniors. And in the beginning, um, we were kind of in a modernized, converted pain pack, I think, or maybe a Safeway, um, with about 450 kids. Um, and that was the first time that in Alaska we had experienced full implementation from the very beginning. We took three weeks of in-service time as teachers before school started to build upon the work that Shugash had started with standards and rubrics and put them in all of our content areas and um, develop a learning management system at that time with partners from um, Three Shapes and was called Educate as learning management system. No
0: kidding. I didn't know that you guys were at the beginning of that.
1: Well, Educate had already started in some places and had been working with option schools. But because we had received some money to build that charter, we had a lot more money to invest. And um, we had a necessity to start from the very beginning. And so we got to work very closely with that group for years. And um, they were working with other folks in Alaska, too. But um, I like to think that Scott Bacon was most inspired and energized working with our
0: setup. But we really enjoyed that group Scott, and I think it's now Empower Learning, is working with the Lindsay School District in California, right?
1: Yes, and with many districts in Maine and with Westminster, which was formerly known as Adams 50, in Denver, Colorado.
0: Right. So, how did you get from this innovative new charter school in Alaska to Lindsay Unified in the Central Valley of California?
1: Well, um, I think at that point there had been a lot of foundational work to talk about the model and what it looked like, but there was a lot of um, conversation about, um, well, you can do that in Alaska. It's remote. You have the right demographic, you have oil and gas money, or you have money to support learning change and dynamic systems. And as we were um, began consulting, I think before I went to Lindsay, I had been consulting for risk for almost five years and had worked with Maine and, and Denver and other schools. And what I, saw is that I wanted to get back into it because Common Core had occurred during that time. And there was a lot of concern that Common Core was different. And could you do the same model with Common Core? And I saw the opportunity in Lindsay and we got to be a part of us, got to help do, we were lucky enough to write parts of the race, to the top grant. We had been consultants already for Lindsay. And so I'd already worked with the Virgil as a principal. And in fact, Virgil as a principal and Tom Rooney as assistant superintendent, when they first started looking at models and systems came up to Anchorage. And I got to see them when I was an administrator at Highland tech and got to show them the school very back in the beginning. So we had a relationship, but then writing part of that, Grant was able to write dream jobs like development of social emotional learning as a content pre K through graduate outcomes, as well as a dark, an adult learning continuum. And so once that race to top grant was accepted, which you know we weren't sure if it would be, uh, John Caesar went down to work for Lindsay, who had been their risk consultant, and recruited others. I was one of them, and we got to kind of basically have a dream team to maybe take the model that Lindsay was doing and prepare it in a way that others could learn and share from it. But a lot of that work had been done by the time I arrived. Um, Some of it with us as consultants, some of it with B. McGarvey and um, Chuck Schwann and others. There was a lot of folks that were supporting Lindsay, but Janet uh, Kegel, the superintendent at the time and Tom Rooney, they'd already done that shared vision work with the community when I arrived to talk about what do you want for a for, um, a Lindsay graduate? So when I got there, I got to do more of the, I got to work with Educate again, <laughs> but it was, then became Empower. But there was a whole team that was dedicated to that. I was mostly working with the implementation and social emotional learning and the adult learning platform, which was just a dream opportunity.
0: Yeah, it was a dream team. We should let folks know that uh, Virgil Hammonds was the was the deputy there. Virgil went on to RSU two in Maine and did really innovative work, and now yes, leads uh, school. Support efforts for the Knowledge Works Foundation in Cincinnati. Uh, Tom Rooney. It, it's uh, in- interesting that his a lot of his inspiration came from the work that you and and uh, and others were doing in Alaska. Uh, but his community conversations were really important foundational work. There isn't that right.
1: Yes, and that. That particularly, when he will talk about that work as a team, um, Chuck Swan and Bea McGarvey were big partners in their strategic design, but they brought in, I think, uh, just a little over 100 folks from the community to talk about what they wanted their um, graduates to look like, when they left their system, and how would we define that, and what would we want teachers, how would we want to define the teachers that we needed and how to support that. And that work is still in play today, and they reference that work to guide them through all changes and any obstacles any grants or any other work that they go after has to be aligned to that vision with the community. And the community is always invited in to revisit that. It's a very strong piece of the work that drove the innovation there.
0: So how many years were you in Lindsay and what, what are your big takeaways about the work there?
1: I was in Lindsay working for them full time for two years and a consultant previous to that. Um, and I absolutely, uh, I I just enjoyed that community so much because of the dedication they had for improving schools for their kids and embracing um, change in a way that they believe to make a better um, life. And you definitely have seen that in the the data. Some people might just look at the data now and not see it, but to see the growth over time and to know what changes have been made there. Um, The culture and climate scores from students and families is some of the highest in the state of California, pretty big state. And I would say their graduates have increased in numbers to system to colleges around the state that they've never had before. So they've made a real sincere effort. And a recent grant that they applied for was about building from within, building capacity of teachers they currently have and paras and supports from the community to become teachers. So really investing in that community and economic growth and, and really a community effort.
0: For people that don't, no, Lindsay. It's a small farming community about an hour southeast of Fresno in the California Central Valley. Um, high poverty, um, high percentage of English language learners. Um, a really challenging place that didn't have a, a strong history of educational success. So, a lot of us think what they've done there is is uh, really remarkable. We've been fortunate to have Tom uh, and, and some of the uh, his team uh, on the podcast and we've featured their work and really appreciate the vision that they have for meeting kids where they are and, uh, and challenging them every day. One of the things I love about Lindsay is you can pick any learner and they can tell you what they're learning and why it's important and what their goal is for the day. So kids really seem to own their own learning.
1: Absolutely. And are excited to tell you about it.
0: They're excited to tell you about it. Yeah. I I do appreciate that they've begun, you know, these are, they're not fancy schools. They're old buildings. They've started to take some of the walls down between classrooms to facilitate easier movement, so that kids uh, can can move between a, a reading group and a math group, but they, they're they really trying to create structures that support teachers and kids to uh, help, help meet kids where they are and move them as far as fast as they can.
1: Absolutely. I was able to recently go back and visit and see a lot of those changes that you're talking about within the buildings, and it's pretty exciting to see the purpose and intent
0: of that. What did you see when you went back?
1: Uh, well, we went to Washington school, which you often highlight, and that's a dual immersion um, elementary school, um, run by cinnamon. And it was wonderful to be back as a, as a team visiting from across the country to see it and to hear it from others' perspectives as they got to witness that work and just see the power of that growth. And to see the learners still continuing to talk about their work and sharing that piece. Um, social, emotional learning and growth mindset still alive. And I still got to see a lot of that work. It hasn't just, wasn't just a fad that you definitely hear kids talk about wanting to, you know, pull in their growth mindset when they have, when they are confronted with challenging tasks. And you definitely hear that from family members. What was, um, what was really great for me coming back after all this time was the parents that were brought in to talk to the group and having that time to connect with so many of them that I had known before and hearing them share about their journey and the influence it's had on their kids, but also their personal lives. It was, it was very powerful to come back and visit and just to see how far they've come. And, and to hear them receive such great feedback. I think the mark of a really strong district is a district that continues to stay in a learner stance. And they could easily think they have it all figured out. And they were really um, open and receptive to having people come in and say, where's the next piece we need to grow on? Give us some strong feedback so we can do even better for these kids, we, we know we still have things we could do. And I think having that mindset modeled at all levels is a pretty powerful experience.
0: So after Lindsay, uh, you moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, the Mesa County Schools, District 51 in Colorado. Um, what attracted you to that district?
1: When I was in Lindsay, I was in charge of the visits. And one of the groups that came through was was the 51 And I think before coming to Lindsay, after many years of national work, I would always hear those kinds of reasons, maybe excuses about why others could or could not do similar work. And some of these excuses were about locations being remote. Some of them were about demographics, some of them about financial support and burning platforms. What I appreciated about D51 um, was that here was a community that was on the Western slope, very large district on the Western slope of Colorado, um, kind of hard to categorize because at 22,000 kids, you know, about 43 schools four large comprehensive high schools, plus some other alternative choices. And in general, you know, a medium sized district by most standards, but pretty big for the Western slope and certainly big for this work. Um, and they were coming not with an urgent platform because their kids were failing. They just didn't feel like they were meeting all their learners, which I always think is just a beautiful commitment of the people that come to see And they weren't, they're not an area that would attract a lot of money or attention, but they definitely were an area that had experienced um, severe economic downfall and had hits from that. And they were still trying to do what they could for their system, not seek out money. They were trying to improve their system with the money that they had at hand. And it felt very compelling to me as a story. And I also felt like the folks that they chose to send to Lindsay to visit said a lot about the community. Um, Steve Schultz was a superintendent at the time. And he brought folks from the university, the local university, from the economic council, from the owner of the paper, um, a a nice mix of folks from the community to see the school district and see what Lindsay had brought and to make sure that the whole community wanted to support something like that before they got started, which I think a lot of people always wish they would have done. But what stood out to me is that D51 did that. So that's in a way what brought me to District 51, not because I wasn't enjoying my time at Lindsay. I thought it was really powerful, but we had a lot of great work and we had a lot of great people there. And I felt like often what we hear is the size. And so I wanted to see what it would look like when you scale it up in the sense of I knew it would work. It works in schools, the sizes of the schools that are here, but as a larger system, as a district, what protocols and systems would you need to change at the district office level? Um, in order to support that work and how would you truly meet that many schools where they are at in different levels even within their own building and help them move forward to personalized learning that was a a a big challenge um i knew that everyone deserved to experience this model and that we certainly proved it in sites that were similar sizes but we hadn't done it in a district of schools like this and so that was pretty enticing and that's why i moved
0: did I guess, in terms of the foundational work, especially community conversations, did you see uh, some similar efforts to uh, the work that Tom had done in Lindsay?
1: Yes, absolutely. And in fact, there's a little, I didn't find this out until I got here, but there was a conference a ways back when I was still at Highland that we had done with Marzano as a partner. And what happened is a lot of folks were interested. I was at risk at the time were interested in what risk was sharing. And this was before a formalized partnership had happened later on years later. And in that room was Lindsay and D51 and others. But I find that interesting now because the routes they took, it takes a lot longer for this work to move at a district this size. Um, And I think that they had heard a lot of stories there from people about what they had done initially to begin. And so they smartly had, listen to lessons learned from folks and also things that they wanted to do. You could see evidence of that when I arrived and we took a good two years to build a shared vision across the system so that it wasn't really just a vision of a few people shared out in a large community. And that takes time to build you. And you have to ask those questions about what do you want a D51 graduate to look like when they leave our system? How would you want them to be described? And how would you want our learning system to look to support that? Because In and of itself, personalized learning is not a vision. That's just the way you shape your system to achieve the vision you want for your kids. The vision is how you want to define your graduates. And taking time to do that across the system thoughtfully um, was work that Steve and I got to be a part of and, and build with others, Lee Grosso and a few others that really became a big piece of that with community leaders, community members who were trained to lead those conversations. It was, it, I had not seen it done that way and it was really exciting to be a part of. And I felt like we took the time to do the shared visioning piece um, and give it the time that it, it needed. So I, that was- yeah, I
0: appreciate, look. one thing I appreciate about what you and Steve did was really build not only a, a vision of a graduate profile, but a, a vision of, a powerful vision of uh, learning and then invited schools to grow into that framework, sort of recognizing that teachers and schools um, like kids move at different rates of speed. And you quickly had about seven pilot schools that that jumped in and moved quickly. Uh, But you you gave other schools um, the time and support to move at their own rate. Is that a fair... Characterization yes, district, of the change right? strategy?
1: Yes, I think so. And you, and, it, and it is the dance. It's the dance at any level. It's a dance for teachers, it's a dance for leaders, it's a dance for a district office. But how you give people enough room to have that autonomous choice making, but also enough urgency to keep it moving forward. And so, definitely trying to support people coming in at different places. But also giving people space where they needed, if there was things that came up that they weren't expecting. So really trying to provide that dynamic support for schools as they began that process. And we we had four um, elementary schools, two middle schools, and alternative options high school that were what we called our um, demo schools, and they were there to demonstrate where they were in the journey, having different readiness levels. Some schools. Um, larger than others, some magnet, but letting folks come in and see what it looked like at different levels of implementation.
0: So, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. I, I'd love to get uh, Rebecca's picture of uh, powerful learning. Um, you've got elementary kids of your own at home. You know, as you think about moving and, and looking for schools, what what would you want a great week of school to be like for them?
1: I, the very first thing that I would want for any child, especially mine, um, is that they feel safe and valued and supported and that they have a voice during the day of their learning to have some choice or to have some say in what that day looks like. Um, that's the most important piece for me. I, of course, want them to know what they're learning and why. And if it's not immediately contextual, that it's sequential. That some, At some point, what they're learning will lead to something that they can use in real life. Um, seeing that value in that, and that um. um Also facilitating productive struggle and that exploration piece. Those are really important pieces to me. And I am currently in a place where I'm needing to look at schools for my kids um, for this next year. And it's definitely on my mind when I go to visit schools now in a different way. I've always visited schools and given site feedback. But coming in as a parent, it has been um, a a different experience.
0: Yeah, it makes it real, doesn't it? It
1: It makes it real. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. When you, when you think about uh, older students, uh, let's say high school age, what, what would you hope for, uh, what would you hope to see there?
1: I would want them to be setting themselves up to eventually lead their own life, and I mean by going out and pursuing what they want to do with their life because they're interested, not because they think this is what I can do versus what I can't do. So having that opportunity to know what it like, what it's like to pursue something you don't yet know how to do but want to learn and knowing where to find those strategies and resources. I think as a school system, the promise we make to learners when they come to us every day is that they're going to leave our system with agency and that they're going to know how to lead that pursuit of what they want, whether that's college and career readiness, what that looks like, entrepreneurship, what they want to do after they leave our system, that they know that they have the capacity to go out and seek the knowledge they need to make that a reality. And I think when you set that up, that looks like making choices K through 12 and at a high school level, even more so and building units and sometimes failing and sometimes having to redo that work, having to ask for help, knowing where your strengths are, but also knowing where your areas that you need to focus on. Um, I, I do believe that you can dive into strengths and really build upon that. And that is a powerful piece, but I do think it's also important for learners to know Areas that they struggle with, so that they don't feel um, less restri- that they won't feel restricted in their choices afterwards because of those.
0: Well, I'm glad you uh, you talked about agency. We we just keep discovering that that's more and more important given the the sort of complex world that young people are going to step into, and the ability to know yourself as a learner, to be able to manage your your time and your interactions. Uh, it seems so vital. And if we take this seriously, developing agency, it does seem to imply schools and learning experiences that are quite different than the norm today. Schools that sort of value routine and compliance have little, create little opportunity for kids to build agency. So it, right, what you're describing uh, suggests a pretty different learning experience than is typical in most high schools.
1: Yes. The term that, you know, it gets overused, but I really want people to th- you know think about that as we are not sending students out for the factory model where they are going to have to be innovative. They're going to have to be able to know ways to work with one another and to seek um, innovative practices. And that requires a, a agency that requires an understanding of who you are as a learner and who you would be as a worker. I think knowing those pieces are really going to be the best way to support kids moving forward. And it, I would say that in a system, in a high school, you would imagine Learners being able to look at a dashboard of where they are in their skill set not just whether they've accomplished assignments or activities or tasks in their course, but what are they learning from those activities? What can they take away from that? Where, where can they go back and revisit and learn something at a deeper level? Where can they go back and revisit and, and master something they didn't get the first time? Having them be aware of that at a high school level is a better preparation for what comes afterwards than what we have been thinking.
0: It It is. Let's talk about teachers and educators. What what do you think educators can and should be doing to build the knowledge, skills, and dispositions for the work ahead? We
1: have to support teachers in the same way we believe we support learning. So um, I think we have to make it a safe place for educators to ask for training and help. We have to also make it um, transparent about expectations. I think once we can have a transparent message about what you need to do as an educator or provide, it allows educators to see what they're already doing. So much of what we talk about, many, many educators do on a daily basis, but may not have the words to express that. And that intentional planning for that and just being aware of what they're doing has a a longer shelf life for them to continue that process. It honors the work that they already know how to do. And it gives professional learning an opportunity to meet educators where they are and what they need to move forward. And if that's not transparent, if you don't have a pathway for that, then you're actually letting your teachers experience the, the piece, that learning environment that you don't want for your high school kids or your other K through 12 learners. You want to provide that same opportunity, that awareness of what the expectation is with paths to support and grow them. And when I think adults know that they're going to be grown in any learning or working environment, they're going to stay. And when they know they're going to be invested in and it's safe and that they have ways to seek out support and work together as a network across their own school or across their district, that's the way you treat professionals. And I think that's an important piece to grow folks moving on. Often overlooked in that piece is the new role of a site leader. And I think, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was really important to be a good, strong manager and to have good people skills. You always need great people skills. We need to build relationships, but you need to have an ability to be an instructional leader in your building and know how to support and honor what's happening and also look for those gaps to provide appropriate professional learning. Um, I think you need to know the needs and gaps in your building, just like you would ask teachers to know with their kids in their classroom. So some of that can be um, further developed through technology and some of that can just be further developed by awareness of a leader and knowing this work and getting in there and hence hands- I was fortunate enough when I was an administrator doing this work to still be in the classroom. And even when I was leading a school, I still held on to an advisory because I knew I needed to stay in touch with the changes that were being made so that I could speak to it, that I could speak to what I was asking teachers to do. I was lucky to be in that setting, and I feel fortunate. So I I would love to seek ways that we could provide support for site leaders to have that opportunity as well.
0: Rebecca, let's wrap by... Trying to uh, enumerate a couple of the keys to transforming schools and systems. We'll draw out a couple of the lessons that we've talked about. It seems like uh, number one on my list is school visits. I I just finished a bunch of school visits this week. Um, And in every one of the stories that you talked about, uh, school visits were really important. So it sounds like you agree that that is an important part of expanding people's horizons and helping them to see what's possible, build sort of new mental models, right?
1: Yes. And I would just point out the parallel. Anything that we believe is good practice for teachers and kids should be good practice for school leaders. So if we're getting into classrooms and doing site visits for classrooms and giving teachers great feedback, I would want principals and site leaders to have that for their building as well, getting in and have visits come and give them good feedback that they can use.
0: Uh, What what other lessons do you draw from uh, the system transformation that you've done?
1: I think giving space for people to really grapple with what change is and what it can look like and how it could result. Um, We know that strong learning has productive struggle to it. We know that strong learning for a system is going to have productive struggle. And I think having people understand before they get too far down the path of transformation to really remember and reflect on the why you're doing that change so that when those challenges um, come up, you can persevere through that. We've had some pretty strong obstacles in um, District 51 with just events that have happened. And this district has stayed on course with the model and really believed in the work because I believe the why we want to do different for learners is strong. And I think that's a really helpful piece to hold on to as you start to make that journey. Don't let go of the why, revisit the why, whether that's your vision or your strategic design, but make sure that you're coming back to that as you hit obstacles along the way.
0: Any uh, thoughts on, um, on building and maintaining community support during difficult work?
1: That's kind of what I'm referencing. I mean, I think we put two years in our shared vision, but you have to keep doing it. And you have to develop systems and structures in your system where you're inviting community members to come in, observe, give feedback, put them on on committees. I mean, recently, our board and our superintendent had people from the community and the district co-chairing committees. Although tough, you know, there was a lot of learning that happened on both sides. That was great for us. I think finding ways to systemically involve Community members and parents and families within your school day, within your district setup is important piece to keep it alive and let people know that they're a part of that and sharing back with them when questions have arisen and you have um, answers, you need to make sure that you're sharing that or when you don't, you know, we're not really sure right now we're investigating this piece, that transparency builds the trust. And I think that allows people to get involved and help support the work.
0: Uh, Rebecca Middles, it's been great to have you on the podcast. It's been fun to be on this 20-year parallel (laughs) journey in so many important places. Yes. (laughs) Uh, We look forward to the next 20 years of trying to support school and system transformation uh, all over the world.
1: Well, thank you for the work you're doing and highlighting all of those journeys. Rebecca is a nationally recognized leader in system design that work for all learners. We're thrilled to have her joining our team. That's right. I'm excited for this summer with Rebecca. For more on building a performance-based system in Mesa County, Colorado, be sure to check out episode 196. Likewise, if you want to learn more about Lindsay Unified, check out episode 176 for a discussion with Superintendent Tom Rooney. We've got them linked in the show notes. If you're interested in learning more about our design work, check out gettingsmart.com and send us a note on info at gettingsmart.com. We'd love to support you and your team. All right, that's it for today, listeners. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica and Caroline signing off.